morning. I'm going to be reading Matthew 5, verses 20 to 26. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's the Lord's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And sometimes, Lord, it's hard. And it's hard to say thank you. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to see your will and your word um, and the beauty of your gospel. I pray that your gospel would be clear to your people despite my own inadequacies. And that, Lord, your people would be built up in every way into Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I grew up loving the legend of King Arthur. I don't know about any of you. Um, I loved those legends and those stories. I always found it very compelling. Arthur, as a character, if you're, if you're not familiar, he's intentionally a mix of King David and Jesus, um, turned into sort of a national um, uh, legend for, for England. Like King David, he has humble beginnings, but is appointed to be king when he pulls the sword out of the stone, and then he has to fight for his crown. He's also like King David in that he builds a kingdom and seeks to found it on justice and love, but he himself, as well as his men, have shortcomings that leave the promise of righteous rule not quite fulfilled. But like Jesus, he's also, there's also the legend Uh, that speaks of his return to usher in a true kingdom of goodness and glory. You know, I always, as a child, would imagine myself being in that kingdom and living like a knight of the round table, though I never learned fencing. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is all about being part of a kingdom. It's a kingdom that really these stories are meant in some way to point to or at least reflect It's a kingdom of righteousness and goodness, truth and beauty, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And what happens when you enter a kingdom is you begin to live by its values. When you enter it, you are changed by it. You begin embracing its way of life. And if you remain, you see the beauty of that way of living from the heart. 
That's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who follow after him, they become part of a kingdom he is building of human hearts. And they are changed by it, by him from the heart to live according to his way of life. The way of humility, fidelity, mercy, truth, justice, and love. And that's what the greater righteousness is that he's calling them to in that first verse. A righteousness and a, and a life and a love that emerges from within, not, a, not which is imposed from without. You know, I think it's so important to remember these things about Jesus' sermon as we come to this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Because if we're not careful, we can hear Jesus just giving the disciples another set of rules externally rather than describing the heart of those who would be part of his kingdom. This first section following the introductory parts of the Sermon on the Mount, um, it focuses on the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. But as Jesus expands on this command, and he gives examples of what this looks like to obey it from the heart, he makes some statements that might be challenging for us to hear and receive. What I want to do is explore this section as a contrast, a contrast between meekness, which he encouraged and, and held out as a value of his kingdom in the Beatitudes. We looked at it several weeks ago. A contrast between the meekness Jesus commends in the Beatitudes and the human anger we all struggle with. For in describing ungodly anger, what Jesus commends is meekness after his own pattern, Christ-like meekness. What I want you to take away from today is that it is only as we follow Jesus from the heart in meekness that we can bring healing to our fractured relationships. We'll talk first about anger, then meekness, and then finally how through embracing the meekness of Christ we can be agents of his healing love. So Jesus opens this section on the Sermon on the Mount with the first of several statements known as antitheses, um, setting apart two different values. And, and they're sort of, he's, it's a difference of emphasis. He quotes the Old Testament, in this case the Ten Commandments, and then he gives his own commandment, which expands on it in some significant way. But the first thing it's really important for us to say or, or, or know is that Jesus here is not replacing the Ten Commandments or God's law with something completely new. That's not the antithesis that's happening. He is speaking as one who authoritatively applies God's commands to the hearts of his people. That's the antithesis between an external law and a king who comes to place his, his law in the people's hearts. You know, when you look at the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, a good way to see them is as summary statements. Um, there's also a whole other section of Old Testament law in Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus called case law. If you're a lawyer, you might be familiar with that, analyzing legal cases to understand precedents. Um, I used to work on Capitol Hill, and, and these, things, these things mattered there. I decided ultimately not to go to law school, and I think that was a good decision for me. Maybe not for you. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I want to give you, though, an example of how this case law expands on and explains the application of the Ten Commandments, because I think by doing this, we can understand a little bit of what Jesus is doing. It's an example from Deuteronomy 22.8. There's this really weird law 
that requires God's people to build a parapet on their roof. It's like, why, why are you requiring people to build a fence on your roof? Well, if you know anything about uh, dwelling places in the Old Testament in that context, they were all flat roofs. A lot of them were one-story buildings, sometimes two. But by having a flat roof, um, that space was usable space. And so there would often be a stairway that would go up to that roof or a ladder by which somebody could access it. So their require, the requirement of God is that God's people build a parapet on the roof because if they didn't, they would incur blood guilt on them and their household. Why is that? Well, this commandment actually points back to the command, you shall not murder. What it's saying is that um, by applying this commandment to how you maintain your home, it tells God's people that to be a not murdering person, you not only had to refrain from actively unjustly killing people, you had to take steps to prevent people from harm on your property by caring for it and protecting those who would come into it. So according to scripture, we have an obligation not only to not commit murder, but to actively prevent the harm of others to the extent we can. That's how God's Old Testament law worked. This case law just applied the Ten Commandments to specific situations that we might see God's heart behind it. Jesus, in this passage, is likewise expanding on the Sixth Commandment, but he's also doing something more. He's showing what it looks like when God's commands are written on the hearts of God's people. Not merely what it looks like not to murder, but what it is to be a not murdering person from the heart. So when Jesus says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment, he's not doing something entirely new. What is surprising, though, is how extreme he seems to be. This is one of those statements of Jesus that we like scratch our heads and wonder, really, Jesus? D did you just say what I think you said? Is that what you meant to say, that, that anger results in judgment? I mean, psychologists say that anger is an emotion. You just, it's not good or bad. You feel it, and, and you feel what you feel. It's, it matters how you respond. And, and I don't think that's entirely wrong. But we wonder, perhaps that word doesn't mean what he thinks it means. I mean, is all anger sin? Now, the answer to that is no. Not all anger is sin. But we need to be careful in how we get there. We need to be careful in how we get there. None of us should be too quick when we hear Jesus' words to, to seek to answer the question of whether our anger is sinful and say, well, 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 he's not saying this type of anger is sinful or this type of anger is sinful, and the this and this that we're saying is generally however we're experiencing anger. So we read this passage and then immediately proceed to try to justify why we're angry. And instead of hearing Jesus' words, we end up with a list of why we're righteous. <laughs> we can hear him say, don't be angry, and immediately explain it away. But what we're meant to do is to hear these words and receive first Jesus' challenge to humbly evaluate our own anger. In fact, I think for many of us, sinful anger is likely the single biggest struggle with sin that we face. Perhaps it's left scars in your family. 
Perhaps it's left pain in your relationships with kids, with parents, with spouses, or friends. For some, ungodly anger may have cost jobs. You know, I think the two examples he gives of what it looks like to be angry with a brother or sister are really helpful in understanding our own sinful anger and discerning whether or not our anger pleases God or not. What Jesus does is he criticizes those who call a brother or sister raka, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I didn't look it up in advance. Um, I looked up what it meant, though. It means a foolish or worthless person. The other example is if you say to one another, you fool. Literally, it's where we get the word moron from. Both of these are examples of dehumanizing and harsh speech toward another person. First, toward a member of God's family. And second, towards just about anyone. Speech that tears down and sets me above my neighbor. Speech that destroys relationships. That can't bring restoration. They're words of anger that demonstrate we believe from the heart the lie that another person who has angered us is less valuable or worthy than we are. The reality is that each and every one of us is going to feel anger. You might be angry at me this morning for preaching on this passage. I don't know. But, you know, there's a right way to respond to that feeling and a wrong way. The right way, as we'll see in a bit, is to seek to resolve conflict as much as you possibly can. And the wrong way is to further destroy a relationship with harsh speech or slander. In either sense... Whichever path you choose is actually a demonstration of what's in your heart. And that's what we are called to wrestle with. You know, I have a couple quick suggestions on how to discern if your anger is sinful. And these aren't comprehensive by any means, but I just want to give you a way to think about it quickly. First, if you are approaching God's word to justify yourself, your anger is probably sinful. (laughs) We should never approach God's word that way. We have to let it examine us openly. I often say and often reflect in Bible studies on Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Is that your prayer when you are confronted by your own anger? Or is it, God, I'm right, show me how. Be open to being wrong. Have a teachable heart before God's word, not a self-justifying one. Have a teachable heart between those you're angry with, not a self-justifying one. Be willing to be wrong. Second, what's your perspective on the person you're dealing with, you're angry with? Does your anger set you above the person? In your anger, do you forget that you are a sinner in need of grace and just spend all this time in your mind thinking through these these fantasies of just telling off this other person and showing them how wrong they, they are? Your anger is probably sinful. In your anger, do you forget that you are in need of grace too and thus treat the one with whom you're angry as less worthy of it than you? The religious leaders of Jesus' day were angry about sin. They were furious about sin. And they take it out on people. But they were so from a place of blind moral superiority. 
not humility before, the, before God and grace. Finally, if your anger is about personal inconvenience, there's a good chance it's not godly. Look at when Jesus became angry. When did Jesus show anger? And indeed, he did get angry, and it was not sin. It was when he saw the oppression of the weak and the poor. It was when he saw, it's when he saw the arrogance of the wealthy and outwardly religious who ignored the suffering of others. In his anger, though, he did not demean, he protected. He protected the weak and those who are far off. As Isaiah 53 said, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he never opened his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to slaughter. You know, there's an excellent story I ran across that displays the real-world impact of sinful anger and what it takes to overcome it. It's the account of General Peter Pace. He was a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff back in, I think, 2005. He told of a time, though, when he was serving as an officer in Vietnam. He said, and I'm, I'm just going to quote his story here, there was an event in Vietnam where I almost made a very serious mistake. We had been on patrol, and a young Marine named Lance Corporal Guido uh, Ferranaro, 19 years old, from New York, he was killed by a sniper. The bullet came from a nearby village. I was the platoon leader, and he was my machine gun squad leader. I was enraged, and I called in an artillery strike to get the sniper. But then I looked to my right and saw 21-year-old Sergeant Reed B. Zachary. He didn't say a thing. He simply looked at me, and I knew what I was about to do was wrong. I called off the artillery strike, and we swept the village, as I should have done in the first place. We found nothing but women and children as the sniper was long gone. I don't know that I could have lived with myself had I done what I originally planned to do. I don't think I would be standing in front of you today had I, allowed, had I almost allowed the rage of that moment to overcome what I thought was some substantial thinking about who I was going to be in combat. He went on to talk about how he took his platoon aside and told them how Sergeant Zachary stopped him from making a grave and costly error. You see, his anger... His wrath in that moment, it felt so righteous. A member of his squad had been killed. But in his wrath and anger, he was about to commit incomparable harm and sin. His wrath in that moment was sinful. It caused him to devalue the lives of a town full of civilians, forgetting that they were equal value with him in God's sight. It was destructive. No good would have come from his anger, only slaughter. But he had the humility and meekness to bring his rage under control and do, when, do what was right when his sergeant looked him in the eye. The general's anger would have destroyed, but his humility and meekness saved lives. That's where we come to the subject of meekness. And I wanted to give you this example of General Peter Pace to talk about meekness because the first thing we need to remember is that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is actually the antidote to sinful anger in the Christian life. In fact, it can be said that Jesus restored our relationship with God through meekness. Well, what is meekness? As I said, it's not weakness. 
We can sometimes think that, though, can't we? Anger is such a strong emotion. Especially righteous anger is such a strong emotion. But meekness we associate with this servile and cowardly humility. When we experience a wrong, it is natural for us to want to strike back, to fight fire with fire. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? But that is sinful anger and vengeance. Meekness is the opposite. It is not the lack of power. It is power under control. Meekness is power under control, specifically under the control of God and his word. Meekness is what Jesus did when he remained on the cross and refused to call down legions of angels to his aid. It was meekness when he healed the ear of one of the temple guards who had come to arrest him, ultimately taking him to crucifixion. The one that Peter had attacked with a sword. Meekness was displayed when he did not lash out in wrath at those who accused him, but bore their insults on the cross and prayed, even hanging there in unjust agony, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It was meekness that led Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, for my sin and your sin, we who were his enemies by our rebellion. And it is meekness that Jesus himself calls us to emulate when he says to the crowds, when when someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. When someone takes your tunic, give him your shirt as well. Jesus himself modeled the life he is calling us to when he endured wrong without complaint for our salvation, when he died on the cross in our place. So Jesus here calls his disciples to embrace his greater righteousness and follow him in costly, courageous meekness toward one another and the world. You know, if we embrace this Christ-like meekness, we'll discover that it's not just giving things up. There's incredible benefit and reward we'll discover that we have a surprising opportunity to be agents of his healing love in ways that asserting ourselves in self-defense and anger could never produce. In the last half of our passage, Jesus moves on from explanation to example. He gives two examples of what it looks like to embrace meekness and reject ungodly anger. The first involves sacrifice. In verse 23, he paints this picture of a person coming to the temple to offer sacrifices, which was part of the religious practice of of Israel at that time until Christ died and and rose again, sacrificed once for all. But anyway, he came, so, so this person comes to the temple to offer sacrifices, but on the way, he remembers that a fellow believer has a complaint against them, has a problem with them. We don't know anything about the complaint, except that there is a damaged relationship of anger and disunity. He says that the meek response is to try and resolve rather than letting it fester. It's like the verse that says, it is, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But he says that sacrifice in that situation is ungodly. Until that anger is resolved. Leave it. 
don't think that a sacrifice pays for or makes up for the anger. It's a direct condemnation of formal religion, of outward piety and holiness and superiority that lacks the heart of the reconciling God and is unwilling to repent. Don't give a tithe or an offering if by it you're trying to make up for something or avoid repenting in a relationship. That's not the way religion works, true religion. God has no need of our dirty sacrifices. The sacrifices of God are a pure and contrite heart. These are great value in God's eyes. A meek heart that is humble before God and neighbor and seeks to bring peace rather than destroy. The second example that Jesus gives is a little bit harder to pin down. Jesus calls on his followers to settle matters with an adversary before getting to court. But the reason he seems to give has nothing to do with relationships or witness. He simply says, if you don't do this, you're going to wind up in jail and you're going to have to pay every penny. It seems like a little bit of pragmatism. How does this relate to anger anyway? Well, it's about the relational conflict that happens with unresolved, sinful, and selfish anger. That's what this example is about. It's about relational conflict that results from unresolved anger. Left undealt with, this kind of anger always results in judgment, never flourishing in restoration. We can think that holding on to our rights will somehow make us happy, but if you've been in that position, you know it never does. It is yet another call to meekness, to pursue reconciliation over standing for my rights. It's not a command to never go to court, but it is a reminder that the absolute commitment to securing my rights against those I feel I am justly angry with will not produce peace. It will not produce the flourishing I think it will. It will not bring wholeness. It cannot heal relationships. You know, if you've been in a situation where you've been wrongly accused by someone, you know this feeling. You know this feeling, I, I just want to be vindicated. And if I am just vindicated, it will solve everything. If you've experienced that, how did that work out for you? Probably not so well. Probably not so well. There is rarely true justice in this world. There's this desire to be vindicated, to destroy your accuser, to get justice, but you also know that it rarely works out like this in the world. Anyone who has been through, and I don't want to make light of this, but anyone who has been through a divorce or a civil court proceeding of any kind can tell you this. Worldly vengeance never brings healing. But we have a Savior that the Apostle Paul says did not insist on his own rights, but became nothing, taking the form of a servant for our healing and restoration. Only through following him in meekness and resisting that inner tug to give space for our ungodly anger to run amok can we be agents of his healing love. And you know, whatever it costs us to lay down our rights to emulate Christ, he bore far more and gave you more than you could ever give up in giving you life by his son. Look to the cross and the cost will become smaller. Smaller. 
and the gift become greater. You know, the best picture of this for me, it comes from Les Miserables and the Bishop Muriel. If you have seen that or, or read that, it tells the, thor- the, no, excuse me, the, the story of a thief, Jean Valjean, such a perfect name for that book. He seeks shelter at Muriel's home, during, and during the night, he steals all his valuables. Uh, the police catch Valjean and bring him back to the Bishop Muriel. In that moment, though, when, when they are asking, did this man steal these things from you? Muriel acts in pity. And he takes the only two items of silver of value in his house, these two silver candlesticks, and he gives them to Jean Valjean and said, no, you forgot these. Go in peace. Rather than exact vengeance, Muriel sets for us this impossible example of meekness and unmerited love. Rather than exact vengeance, Muriel sets in motion a story of transformation in the life of Valjean. Wrath would have brought destruction and confirmed his already um, slippery slide into into destruction, uh, Valjean's. But grace and meekness, it brought life. To the world, it seemed crazy, but to Muriel, it was joy And in the end, Valjean is transformed. It's worth a whole lot more than a bunch of silver, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, are you angry? Angry with the world? Angry towards those who have offended you? Angry with loved ones who haven't measured up to your standards? You know, our world pushes us to justify our anger and to place our rights above all else. But Jesus invites us by the gospel to a better way. The way of flourishing in life by embracing the meekness of our Savior. Humbly bringing what power we have under God's control. Not using it for our own ends. Laying our rights at his feet and following Jesus in the beautiful labor of extending costly grace and love. He extended it to you on the cross, and he calls you to follow him. Human anger will never satisfy or heal, but following Jesus in meekness will embrace it and be satisfied and a beacon of light to a world that so desperately needs to see our Savior in you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you did not consider the cost too high for Jesus to go to the cross and bear our sin that we might receive your life. Lord, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of offense, we can struggle so much with anger and discovering what is godly and what is not. Lord, give us eyes to see, eyes to see your grace and our need of it, eyes to see the need of even those who offend us for that same grace. And help us to be willing to bear the cost, a small fraction of what you bore for us, that we might display your love to people in need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for a closing song? Lord, I need you. Is that right? Sing, Lord, I need you. Lord, I come.
flowing here, I find my rest. 